you have a Bible, um, you can open it up to Judges 7, or if it's on your phone, you can unclick it and open up to Judges 7 if that's good for you. Or if you are preferring to hear and read, you can look up on the screen. We are all about helping you get exposed to the Word of God in the way that is best. I'm going to read uh, chapter 7 uh, in its entirety, kind of as a way to, to structure our time this morning. So let me read uh, Judges 7. This is a continuation of the story of Gideon that we've been looking at the last couple weeks. So Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and his army got up early and went as far as the spring of Harad. The armies of Midian were camped north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. Therefore tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. But the Lord told Gideon, there are still too many. Bring them down to the spring, and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. When Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord told him, Divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it up with their tongues like dogs. In the other group, put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. Only 300 of the men drank from their hands. All the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the stream. The Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. So Gideon collected the provisions and ram's horns of the other warriors and sent them home, but he kept the 300 men with him. The Midianite camp was in the valley just below Gideon. That night the Lord said, get up, go down into the Midianite camp, for I have given you victory over them. But if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura. Listen to what the Midianites are saying, and you will be greatly encouraged, then you will be eager to attack. Remember, this guy's a farmer. This is all new for him. So Gideon took Pura and went down to the edge of the enemy camp. The armies of Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east had settled in the valley like a swarm of locusts. Their camels were like grains of sand on the seashore, too many to count. And Gideon crept up just as a man was telling his companion about a dream. The man said, I had this dream, and in my dream, a loaf of barley bread came tumbling down into the Midianite camp. It hit a tent, turned it over, and knocked it flat. That must be some hard bread. His companion answered, your dream can mean only one thing. Remember, these are Midianite soldiers. God has given Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite, victory over Midian and all its allies. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship before the Lord. 
Then he returned to the Israelite camp and shouted, Get up, for the Lord has given you victory over the Midianite hordes. He divided the 300 men into three groups. He gave each man a ram's horn and a clay jar with a torch in it. And then he said to them, Keep your eyes on me. When I come to the edge of the camp, do just as I do. As soon as I and those with me blow the ram's horns, blow your horns too, all around the entire camp, and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. Now it was just after midnight, after the changing of the guard, when Gideon and the 100 men with him reached the edge of the Midianite camp. Suddenly they blew the ram's horns and broke their clay jars. Then all three groups blew their horns and broke their jars. They held the blazing torches in their left hands and the horns in their right hands, and they all shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each man stood at his position around the camp and watched as all the Midianites rushed around in a panic, shouting as they ran to escape. When the 300 Israelites blew their ram's horns, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their swords. Those who were not killed fled to places far away. What a story. There's a great Chinese military general. Some of you have heard his name before. His name is Sun Tzu. And he wrote, or apparently wrote, a very important military strategy book called The Art of War. And he's credited with this influential text, one of the most influential texts on warfare of all time. People still use some of his principles even today. He lived in about 500 B.C., And he was a master of tactics and also a philosopher. He influences modern armies even today. And he had some broad principles. It's really interesting. I just selected a couple of his general ideas about when it's a good idea to attack. These are sort of his ideas. When you outnumber the enemy 10 to 1, surround them. When you outnumber them 5 to 1, if you're five times as strong, then it might be good to attack. If you're twice as strong, try to divide your enemy. They might be easier to conquer. If you are equal in strength, you might want to engage. If you are slightly weaker, make sure that you are able to withdraw if necessary. And if you are totally outnumbered, unequal in every way, get the heck out of there. Be capable of eluding them quickly. Those are kind of his general principles. Do those sound reasonable. I mean, I'm not a military person, you know, but they sound pretty reasonable. But about 600 to 700 years before he wrote this, this battle took place. Maybe this was a battle that he had even studied. We don't know for sure. And this battle in Judges 7 took place with Gideon in command. And as we look at this battle, this chapter in a little bit more detail, my hope in this is that it helps us to see how God actually acts and how he sees the world around us, both then and now. 
You don't have to be alive for very long or walk very far with God to realize God doesn't really tend to see things like we always see things. We might see things in a particular way. You know, we would see 135,000 enemies standing before us and we'd be like, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. How God sees and acts in the world is how God actually wants his people, what he desires of us, how he wants us to see and trust him and live for him each day, each moment, in each situation and circumstance. If his people had access to Sun Tzu, even though he wasn't born yet, and they had tried to follow acceptable military tactics, they would have definitely fallen. And if Sun Tzu were evaluating the Israelites versus the Midianites, he would find many flaws in their strategic battle plan. A lot of flaws. See, the difference between 300, that movie, you know, the, the ancient battle of the 300 warriors standing up against, you know, I think it's Gerard Butler is in that movie, you know. He said he had to get so ripped for that he just hated, hated every moment of it. But in that movie, they actually end up losing. This 300 is the real 300. And they're victorious. And you've seen how they are victorious, and we'll go into more detail. If there's only one thing that you get from today, it's this. Trusting God by relying on his strength alone is the only strategy necessary for you to move confidently from here to there. Trusting God by relying on his strength alone is the only strategy you need to confidently move from where you are now to where you want to be and more importantly, where God wants you to be. Now that might be true, but we also know that that is very hard to do, correct? Yes, I know this. As we already read, Gideon's army is ready. And Gideon, perhaps as the leader, is outwardly confident, but maybe inside he's a little bit unsure, not quite sure how this is all going to work out. And it says that they make camp at the spring of Harad. Harad, ironically, is a word that means trembling. So they're camping at the, I'm trying to, at the, tremble, the spring of trembling, because when there are this few men and they look out and there are 135,000 opponents, yeah, your knees would be trembling. These are all volunteers. This is kind of an interesting draft that we'll see. Now this place is a strategic place. It's opposite the other army. It's on high ground. There's fresh water for the forces. So they're in a good position to start. But this is where God shows us how he sees and thinks differently than we do. He says, Gideon, you got too many warriors. You have too many warriors. And Gideon's probably thinking, really? I don't think I have enough. But you see, God has already promised him success. Victory against the enemy. But then he says, now we're going to thin the ranks a little. Is this a particularly strategic plan? 
No. Some of you think strategy, you have kind of a strategic thinking brain. A lot of churches like to, to talk about strategic plans. Let me let, me let you in on a little, uh, a little thing about God. God is strategic, just not strategic in the ways of this world. He's strategic in his own way. And this is not a particularly strategic plan from the ways of the world. 32,000 against 135,000. If it was me, I would be like, run away. Let me get out of here. That seems like bad odds. But with God and how he thinks, it's never just about adding up the numbers. One plus one equals... People think this is a trick. <laughs> Two. Two. Uh, hopefully everybody went to school here. I know some of you are still in school. Yes, we know one plus one equals school, unless we're learning some weird new math. But there's also another kind of math that God engages in. And the first part on the back, and I'll fill it in a little bit later, I'm just going to give you the first part. It's God's divine math, and it's a different kind of math, and we'll get to that. See, with a huge army, you might be tempted to think, we got this. We got this. What are we worried about? And people might be tempted to trust in Gideon or in their own military ability or even their own courage instead of trusting in the power and strength of God. And God says, I need to thin your ranks or you're not going to get it. So he uses this two-step military drawdown. What's step one? Step one is very simple. He says, whoever is timid or afraid may leave and go home. 22,000 of the 32,000 say, okay, I'm going to take God at his word and go home. You know, I might have been really excited to, to sign up, to enlist, but deep down I'm not really a warrior or I'm not ready or whatever the motivation is. You see, these were all volunteers, like I said. God in his mercy had already actually put it into his law. If you have a Bible and you open up to Deuteronomy 20, or for me, this little slip of paper, here we go. Let me read a few verses from Deuteronomy 20. This is back in God's law that he had already outlined. And first they would come to the priest, and the priest would say, Do not be afraid as you go out to fight your enemies today. Do not lose heart or panic or tremble before them, for the Lord your God is going with you. He will fight for you against your enemies, and he will give you victory. That was the first word they heard. But they also got a second word from the officers. Then the officers, verse 8, will also say, Is anyone here afraid or worried? If you are, you may go home before you frighten anyone else. We know that fear and panic are contagious. We see it in animals and we see it in the human animal. Fear and panic can be contagious. And God had already in his mercy provided a way for people to opt out without losing face, without shaming them, without belittling their maybe a lack of courage or whatever it might be. Now, a healthy amount of fear can be good and even necessary. Often, we should have a little bit of fear in us to keep us honest. But for 22,000, this actually went beyond just simple and healthy fear. They were afraid in their hearts. At some level, they thought, I'm not sure God can win this. 
I know what God has said, but I see 135,000 out there. And I don't think God can win this. They didn't have that acceptable level of trust or confidence in the Lord at that time. But we serve a good God. And God in his mercy says, I understand that you're feeling that way. And maybe you'll get there eventually, but for now, go home. This group was underconfident in God's ability to lead them. Underconfident in God's ability to lead them. So that's the first group. The second group, or step two of the military drawdown, God says this, I will test them to determine who will go and who will not. Now this isn't like the kind of test you have when you sit down in school or you go to the DMV and hope that you're able to pass your driver's test. It's not a test like this. It's not a test to figure out if you actually can drive. There probably should be more people failing that test. Here the word test actually means smelt. Not the little fish, but what you do to metals. Smelt, sift, refine. This is what God wants to do to the remainder of his people that are there. He is going to sift them out, to smelt them down, to refine them in such a way, reducing them to get to the final product that he will be able to use. This is just like what we see happen with gold and other metals. They refine it to get out some of the extra, the impurities. Sometimes songs will say the dross. That's the part that is sort of skimmed away from the metal. And he tells them how to go to the spring to get water. And it says that 9,700, this is going to test my knees, do this. They get down on their knees and they... And they stick their face right in the stream and they just drink. I don't know actually who drinks that way. But apparently 9,700 of the 10,000 that were left decided to drink this way. 300 of them do something different. They might have kneeled down, but they cup their hand and they bring water up to their mouth and they just kind of, who has a dog? Sometimes cats do this too, but lapping water like a dog. So you imagine they're standing there with water. They're trying to hydrate themselves before battle and they're lapping water like this. They must be better because they're dog people. I don't know. I, I, don't, I, don't, think that's, I don't think that's it. 9,700 kneeled down. Their problem was not underconfidence. Their problem was overconfidence. They were overconfident in their situation. They trusted God enough to lead them, but they were overconfident that they didn't have to really do anything. They took their eyes off of what was around them. They stuck it in the water. They're like, God's got this. I don't really have to worry about anything else. And it made them unfocused, not ready for what God was about to do. For those other 300, they kept their eyes up. They were on focus. They had a healthy amount of fear. They saw the enemy out there. They were still willing to trust God, but they wanted to be ready for whatever God was about to do. And they drank. They are confident that with God, the victory is at hand but they also aren't naive. They have a healthy awareness. This is God's plan, verse seven. With these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory. 
And when God says that, if we were there at that moment, we'd be like, are you sure? Did I hear you correctly, God? That's your plan. But this remainder is what God will use to show his true strength. How does that plan sound to you? How does that plan sound to you? Does that sound like a good idea? And you can't answer like a good church, church person would want to. Oh, yes, it sounds like a perfectly wonderful plan. No, it doesn't sound like a good plan at all. God in his mercy knows that even Gideon still has a little something going on inside of him. So he makes that provision. He's, he knows he's a little unsure. Maybe he's a little afraid. So he says, go down to the camp. Sneak down to the camp. And listen to what they say, and it will encourage you. You will be ready to do what I've called you to do. And he hears this crazy dream about a loaf of barley bread rolling down the hill, knocking the tent down, and crushing everything. And the soldiers that are talking about this are like, oh yeah, I know what this means. It means we're going to lose. They just say kind of matter of fact. You know, those Israelites, they're just going to come down and they're just going to take us out. No big deal. So this is what Gideon is hearing. Do you believe in coincidences? I don't. This is all orchestrated for a purpose. Barley was the bread of the poor. It was actually usually fed to cattle. And for the Israelites who had been in a famine for seven years because they were oppressed, this is the kind of bread that they would have been eating. They would have gotten this interpretation. They would have understood that that loaf of bread was meant to be them. And the tent was meant to be the nomadic Midianite people. See, we, we don't quite capture those same connections as closely because we don't travel around in tents usually that often. We don't like to eat poor bread. But that's what Israel was doing. What does Gideon do? He, renews, he returns with renewed confidence. He says, I know that God's got this and we're going to be with God. And this is what God says he's going to use. I'm going to give you a clay pot, a torch, and a horn. I know, I know, I couldn't go out and slaughter a few rams to bring a ram's horn, it just, that doesn't work. God says, these are your tools that I'm giving you to use. A ram's horn and a clay jar with a torch inside of it. And that's how you are going to defeat the enemy. Anyone still feel like this is a good plan right now? Then Gideon says, watch me. Wait for my signal. When I break my pot and blow my horn, then I want you to do the same. And I want you to shout for the Lord and for Gideon. And guess what happened? That's what happened. He goes up. They surround the camp. I'm not sure that they had hammers, but that's what I had and they break the pot and they take their torch out and they hold up their horn 
and they blow their horn. And in the midnight hour, thank you, thank you, my my Israelite brethren. I appreciate it so much. A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And they follow that plan exactly. And what happens? God gives them success. He throws the opponents into confusion and he grants them success. A simple light and a horn. Sun Tzu would say that that math doesn't add up. By our own estimation, they should have run away. Wouldn't more warriors be better? I mean, that's the world we live in. More is better, correct? We live in a world in a time that really believes that more is better. And I actually want to show you a short commercial that came out about seven years ago. And this little girl actually speaks a profound truth. I didn't realize it at the time. But this is what she says. Who thinks more is better than less? Okay, why? More is better than less because if stuff is not less, if there's more less stuff, then you might, you might want to have some more and your parents just don't let you because there's only a little bit. Right. We want more. We want more. Like, you really like it. You right. want more. I follow you. We want more. We want more. There's actually a remix where she repeats, where they have her repeating that about eight or nine times. And yes, she is oh so cute, especially when she has the sharp intake of air just so that she can keep on talking. But the point is made. She simply spoke the truth that we often live in. The message being passed on from generation to generation in our world is that more is better. But God's divine math is the exact opposite. Less is more. More is not better. Less is always more in God's math. God would probably fail elementary math because he wouldn't want to play by the math's rules. Less is more. What does verse 2 say again? You have too many warriors. You'll say you save, you want to save yourself by your own strength. You have too much. You won't recognize that it is me doing the work, winning the battle, going before you, paving the way to get you to where I want you to be. In God's view, less is more, or rather we would say less of us and more of God. There's that verse in the Bible that says, may I decrease so that you, God, may increase. This is totally opposite of the world we live in and the world we have to navigate. This, my sisters and brothers, I believe is the key for us, that less is more. And when God is prepared to work in you, you are never too small or too weak for God to use you. You're never too small or too weak 
You may not feel capable at all. God says, that doesn't matter to me because I see things in you that you may not even see yourself. And I am prepared to crunch this pot again. I'm prepared to use you in a mighty way. Let me say it again. You, me, we are never too small or weak for God to use, to craft, to mold into the people that he wants and knows we can be. What the world sees and writes and speaks and tweets as small or weak is not what God sees in you. It's not what God would say and has said about you. We are never too small or weak for God to use it, but we can become too big or too strong. We can become too big-headed or too strong-willed for God to actually be able to use us, let alone want to use us. In the Bible, we see repeatedly this idea that it is in our weakness that what God's strength is revealed. In our weakness, God's strength is revealed. When you open up your Bible and you start looking through at the passages that talk about weakness, one of the people that was really good at writing about weakness was the Apostle Paul, which is really ironic because Paul did amazing things in the name of God. He went around and he started churches and he preached the gospel and he did all these amazing things, but he also too was tempted to, like most of us, to become proud in what he had accomplished. And God gave him what he calls a thorn in his side so that he would always remember, it's me, not you. It's me and I'm choosing to use you. In 2 Corinthians, he, this is what Paul said, each time that God's, my God said, my grace is all you need, my power works best in weakness. Paul goes on to say, so now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses. I'm not sure I'm quite there yet. Maybe he had a little more time. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults and hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, I don't know how long it took Paul to get there or how he got there, but clearly the Spirit of God helped him get to that place. And that's exactly what the Spirit wants to do with you and me. There's always that temptation for us to become overconfident and believe in our own strength. Instead of saying, thank you, God, for leading me through this or directing my steps in this difficult situation, sometimes we're tempted to say, you know what, I'm, I'm doing pretty good right now. Or see, see the results of what I'm doing? I, I got this. Look at how hard I worked. You know, these are those human temptations that we have. Last week we sang a song based on Proverbs 3, and the verses are some of the most well-known in the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. And those are great verses, but do you know what immediately follows those verses? Don't be impressed by your own wisdom. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Then you will have healing for your body and strength for your bones. 
See, whenever we have those like really iconic verses that you know people memorize or they hold up at sports games, you know, in John three sixteen and others, try to read the verse before and after, and sometimes that gives us a little bit bigger context. Don't get too big headed about who you are or what abilities, gifts, talents, strength that you have. For it is in our weakness that God's strength is made known. In your weakness, people will see God. They will see the power of God in you. And this is a world, my friends, that is desperately struggling to trust in anything other than itself. Do you know that the youngest generation that's been named is Generation Z? So we have sort of Boomer, and then we have Gen X, which is kind of the bridge generation. Then we have Millennials. Boomers and Millennials kind of have some conflicts right now. And Gen Xers are trying to bridge the gap between those two groups. And then after Millennials, we have Gen Zers. And do you know the the new name for Gen Z based on the research that's coming out? The truth generation. It's a generation that is seeking truth. A generation that wants to find truth. Friends, we have truth right here, present in the word of God. Let's be about truth. In our weakness, God's strength is made known. All that we possess and can do, all our strength ultimately pales in comparison. When God at first told Gideon, go with the strength you have, he wasn't lying. He said, yeah, go with the strength you have. But in comparison to my total all-powerful strength, your strength is going to seem kind of puny, maybe even feel like weakness. And that's the point. People will know it's me and not you. The strength to declare victory with a horn from the dollar store, which isn't a very impressive horn, but maybe that's a good thing. And a light and a shout. Friends, may this be an encouragement to you today. You don't have to be the strongest. You can be totally fine and God can use you in your weakness and in your lack of strength. This horn is a symbol, actually, of strength, of God's eternal and ever-present strength. This is God's plan for how he's going to get you to there. This doesn't feel like a very good plan because it it means that you're going to have to totally rely on God for everything. Now, I know some of you are really jealous of the people that have, so I actually have one for each of you. I am going to give it to you after the service, all right? Okay, some of you are like, thank goodness I get one. Yes! All right? But it's not just a silly little dollar horn. Let this be a reminder that this is the strength of God that will get you through whatever you are going through right now. You're not alone and you're not on your own. For in him you are allied with the Lord God Almighty. Trusting God by relying on his strength alone is the only strategy necessary for you to be able to move confidently from here to there. Amen and amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your ways which make little sense to us in the grand scheme of things. I thank you that you are totally willing to use our weakness to demonstrate your strength and power so that when we are interacting with the people that you put into our path, they don't just see us, but they see you in us. 
Christ in us. And that a world that's desperate for truth would see that image of God within us and would reach out and see that hope of glory. Father, will you richly bless your people that you've gathered today? Draw them close to you. Remind them that you are their strength and that you are totally willing to use us. We pray this in the name of Jesus.